Hey gang, it's John. Thanks for listening to another episode of Book Club. And happy Father's Day, by the way. So, I am so happy with this conversation. It is with Nick Durden, the author of the new book, uh, Exit Stage Left, The Curious Afterlife of Pop Stars. When this book came out, I heard from many of you that I should look into it because, of course, the book is focused on the same thing we've been trying to tell in this podcast for seven years now. What do people do when the spotlight moves on? The book is excellent. And I'm not just saying that because it's a topic that obviously if you listen to this podcast, you know and care about this topic too. But Nick is an excellent writer. Excellent writer. I could never have pulled off what he pulls off in this book. And he talks to so many people. Half the people in the book we've had on the show probably. And the other half are fantastic people that I I am so jealous he got to talk to. Natalie Merchant, uh, Bob Geldof, Robbie Williams... Billy Bragg, so many fantastic people. Many of them are included in the description of this show. Anyway, I have a couple copies of this book to give away. I will tell you about that at the end. It's for our Patreon supporters. Um, but anyway, you will, you will love this conversation, and more importantly, you will love this book. Please seek it out. It has my full uh, support. I love it. Well, good. Thank you so much for doing this with me. I, Thank you uh, for asking. I, I'm 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 really touched. Um, I I've, I've I listen to you, and I think you, what you do is great. And I love your enthusiasm and your deep knowledge. So seriously, oh, thank, thank you. you for for having me. I'm I'm very grateful. Wow. Well, same here. It's mutual appreciation. I um, it's funny when the book came out. My wife texted me an article on it immediately, and I didn't even finish reading the article because as soon as I saw what the book was about, I thought, oh, this is a no brainer. And then within like a week. A dozen of my listeners were like, John, have you heard about this book? And so, oh, wow. because they all know that's the, that was the focus of my podcast. Very so, much. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so anyway. that, I didn't realize the book is coming out in America on the 28th of June. I only found that out Friday. So oh. this, is, this is good timing. Yeah. Okay. Even better. Right. I didn't know that either. I, I hmm. assumed it was already out. So first and foremost, I don't always start these things with talking about myself first, but in this case, I'm going to. Because okay. um, I was obsessed with the same topic of this book for years. Mm. How do people pay their bills on an ongoing basis if they had one hit or a record deal or appeared on a talk show or had one video or whatever back in the 80s? How do you make that? How do you sustain that? And I toyed with what to do with that idea. How I... I've never, I got my degree in journalism in college, but I've never written a book and I didn't stick with journalism. It's kind of okay. hard to stick with journalism these days because there's not Oof. a lot of it. <laughs> yep. You can say that again. Yep. Yes. So I, um, and I thought too, if I wrote a book, there would be no end because almost everybody has a story like this. So I wouldn't Completely, even know yeah. where to cut, where to end the book or cut it off. <laughs> And, uh, and I thought about maybe like starting a blog, but those were becoming kind of out of style. And so I thought, well, maybe I'll start a podcast because at least then every episode could be a new mm. story to, of someone trying to, you know, figure it out. And, um, and I will say our podcast has sort of evolved over the years. We're not as focused on the money side yeah. that does come up. You get an idea whether someone can live or not live based on yes. you know, what they do. But, um, Anyway, so I admire your book. First of all, I could never have written a book this good. And secondly, I, I'm, I absolutely mean it. And I'm curious how you even did this because you've written other books, but it doesn't look like you're a music journal. You, it's not, music's not mm -hmm. your thing. So what, how did this even happen? No, I started as a music journalist. I've been I've been interviewing pop stars for thirty years now. So um, okay. I started for the first ten years of my life. All I did was music journalism. I grew up an obsessive music fan, so I worked for music magazines throughout the nineteen nineties. Then at the end of the nineties, I had a couple of novels published, and that got me into the newspapers. So I did more broad arts journalism. Then I did health journalism. Then I had kids, so I did family, travel, food. So I've written about everything, but I've always gone back to pop stars mm. because I've always been fascinated by them. So in the 90s, I did a lot of work for Q magazine, which was our uh, version of, of Rolling Stone. So I worked departed. for I missed one of your Q past. so much. Oh, yeah. my gosh. 
So I did loads of interviews for them for years. And then I don't know if you remember Blender Magazine in the I early do. 2000s sure, in the US. That was essentially mm-hmm. the, U- the US's answer to Q. So I did a lot of cover stories for them. And I was interviewing bands and singers. So so basically, essentially, yeah, to answer your question, I've interviewed singers and bands for yeah 32 okay. years now. Okay. On and off, I yeah. assumed because you're so <clears throat> adept at it. But when I look over the books you've written, they, mm. Not all of them are, they're not music. They're on all No, I wanted, I, because I'd done music for such a long time, I kind of wanted just to write about other things. You know, as you get older, you kind of feel that, I know there's no age limit to music, but as 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 the some of the themes of my book shows and lots of the pop stars that I interviewed for the book suggest that you write your best material between the ages of 23 and 27. So I was interviewing bands when I was 23 and 27, but then at 35 and then at 45. And then it got to the stage where I was interviewing bands who were young enough to be my children, which kind of horrified me. And I'm sure it horrified them. So I veered off to, yeah, as I said, to do other things. But I became, the more I interviewed bands as I went along, the more I realized that their stories, just like all of our stories, are much more interesting as we get older because we've lived more life and life has kind of happened to us and affected us and burned us and disappointed us. And it kind of, you get wisdom, but you also get kind of ground down, but you get back up again, don't you? Yeah. So I I found that I no longer wanted to interview a band on their debut album because as great as they are, and as fantastic and exciting as the music is, there's not much of a story there because they haven't really lived. When you're 35 and 45 and you're on your second or third album, your second or third marriage, you're no longer on the, on the big labels, but you're doing it all by yourself. That's when they kind of show their real, their true colors and their real metal. And I, I found there was so much more to admire because they were showing their staying power then. Mm. because the zeitgeist kind of shifted away from them but they hadn't stopped and they thought look i've still got so much more to say mm-hmm. listen to me and i found that there was a lot to admire about them then mm-hmm. did you uh tap into i assume you've got 30 years of interviews and and connections and interviewees is that how you sort of began formulating what would be this book is who do i know and who would talk to me and who i who do i yeah. think has a good story I did a bit of both. So initially I, I contacted those artists that I've interviewed before or PRs that I've worked with before, hoping that they would put me in touch with artists. And then because I had such a long list of acts that I wanted to speak to, I didn't want to tell the same story throughout the book. I wanted to have overlapping narratives. Mm-hmm. So I just sent out blind, hopefully polite emails to management and PRs and artists themselves via Facebook and social media. So actually I'd never spoken to ever. And I just kind of kept my fingers crossed. A lot of people ignored me. A lot of people said, thank you. No, some said, no way. Am I talking about such a personal subject to a stranger like you? And then, but some did. And I ended up speaking to, I think there's 50 people in the book or at least 50 pop stars in the book. So I was very kind of grateful for their time and for just how a bit like with your podcast, just how candid they are. I didn't know because it's quite a personal topic. You know, when you interview pop stars at the height of their game, they are basically talking about success and glory and Brit Awards and Grammys and playing Madison Square Garden and playing Wembley. So they are boasting. Yeah. I was asking yes. them, what's it like when the, the spotlight shifts elsewhere, when not everyone is as interested in you, but you're still this creative force. What's that like? So, yeah, I did worry. I thought, well, do people want to talk to me? And those that did really kind of bought into it. Again, going back to your podcast, they kind of, they really seem to love that subject. And um, I don't know how you feel at the end of a podcast, but a lot of the times I felt almost more like a shrink than I did an interviewer because the the topics went really deep and existential and philosophical. And I kind of came away amazed by these people i thought god they're really they've got a lot to admire in them because you know these are people who had the temerity early in life to try to live out their wildest dreams which not many of us have the courage to do they did and they achieved it so even though they're no longer quite successful anymore they are still doing that they are still living in a sense their best life Mm. so i felt i found that they really grappled with that subject and they really enjoyed talking about it and kind of going deeper than I'd ever managed to go in a, in a magazine or a newspaper interview. Yeah. It's fantastic. One of the stories that really moved me was Echo Belly. 
because <laughs> I I was a I loved Echo Belly back in the day. I had their albums and everything, and I've reached out a couple of times to get them on here, mm-hmm. but I've never heard back from anybody, which is weird because I, I would think they would talk, but maybe not. But when you, <clears throat> I felt like their story really illustrates the ups and downs <clears throat> of of this whole process yeah. because as great a band as they were, <clears throat> they got they became moderately successful thanks to the Britpop wave of yes. artists like Oasis and Blur and Pulp <clears throat> that were, yeah. and they were in the wake of that. And when that, yeah. and they did pretty well. And then when that wave was over and they still have a lot to say and no <laughs> one's listening as much <clears throat> and they're starting to invest their own money into making their albums in hopes that they're successful enough to pay them back and they're not, and they still <clears throat> want to write songs, but there's no one who yeah. will put them out. I mean, that is such a tragic story for bands that are as talented as they are. And there's thousands of bands like that. Yeah, it's quite a poignant story as well, because I don't know what it's like over in America, but Britpop, the story of Britpop has been told to death. Mm -hmm. And because I lived through it and I reported on it, I'm endlessly fascinated by it. But we know all about Blur. We know all about Oasis and Pop and and Elastica. But I wanted to talk to... Yeah, one or two of those bands that were kind of swept up in it all, but didn't get that spotlight. And Echo Belly was such a fascinating, but such a common story as well, that they got swept up in it. So they undoubtedly benefited from it. Mm -hmm. But a time limit was built in. Mm -hmm. So the moment we all got tired of Britpop and you have to get tired of of a scene that blazes that brightly that quickly, Mm -hmm. they were casualties. So yeah, by the end of that decade after being personally invited to support REM at Milton Keynes Bowl, a, a big outdoor festival here, and everything was going great. Yeah, suddenly the plug is pulled and they think, oh, we're done. Yeah. It's over. I'm, what, 28, 29 years old, and nobody cares anymore because I'm part of a scene that is now already going yellow at the edges. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, it was such a, it was a sad story, but it was also a defiant one. I think there's a section in the interview where she says we had to decide either to cash in our chips and say, look, we've had a good time. Now I'm going to go away and get a proper job or I'm going to remortgage the house and play to 150 people wherever 150 people may turn up. And they chose the latter. So she could have chosen in inverted commas a normal life. But she decided, like so many pop stars, I guess, that they didn't want to be cookie cutter conventional they wanted to carry on being artists and creatives even if that meant penury even if that meant not quite poverty but you know what i mean even if it meant being you know really small and so many of these bands managed to exist on really quite a small scale they have a small fan base but it's an ardent one so a bit like uh, gary newman years ago was able Ah. to sustain himself between record deals purely on the strength of his fan base essentially paying for him to release new albums and then going to see him live. Lots of other bands have done that since. And, you know, it may not be enough for them. They may want to play Madison Square Garden and Wembley again, but they're content that they are still playing to 150, 200 people a night if they turn up. And if they have to play a song that was briefly big in 1996, rather than something they wrote three months ago, that's much better. You know, life could be worse. It's it's That's a first true. world problem, isn't it? It is. It is. Yeah. Um, why do you think this is a common topic that I I address on my show too? Is I'm I'm constantly like, for instance, yesterday we put out an episode with Mike Scott of the Water Boys, and oh, um, okay. I love I always love the Water Boys, and they have he's still putting out <clears throat> albums regularly, and they yep. don't all sound like the old Water Boys stuff. No. They're very updated, and I uh, I just think. First of all, if you look at the people who actually might buy an album, they're usually older people like us. It's not younger people. Yeah. And people like you and I, I'm 10 mm. times more interested in what a new Waterboys album was going to sound like mm. than I am some new artist I've never heard of. I try to keep up on new artists, but I'm invested in yeah. these people. And so yeah. I am baffled why this is a constant thing for me. If I were a record label, I feel like I already have an asset. I have an asset where I know if I put them in a room, 150 to 200 people might show up. And I have this other apps asset that I can go all in on and I don't know what's going to happen with them. We don't know. So wouldn't you bank a little bit on the 150 to 200 people that you know will be there and try and expand these people's careers, but they don't think that way. And I wonder, am I foolish for thinking that way? I don't know. I just, I think for them, it's not enough. You know, the music industry relies upon novelty. So 
150 to 200 people is just nothing. If you sign someone with tattoos all up and down their arms and ginger hair who looks a little bit like Ed Sheeran, mm -hmm. they could blow up and play to 80,000 people a night. And that's, that's always true. the temptation. The music industry thrives on the new and the young and the exciting. When it gets to the stage where they've they've had that burst of fame and then they just play to the the faithful, that's that's not how the music industry works, is it? The music yeah, industry wants to get as not. big as possible. So as soon as Adele blows up, you know, Adele is obviously the except one of the exceptions to the rule. She'll always be there, but you know damn well that the industry is now signing up a dozen, a hundred, a thousand new Adele's, and only one or two will break through. But those one and two will pay for the rest of the industry That's for true. the next ten Good years. Point. Good point. So, yeah, yeah, you know, we we will. So what what I find really fascinating then is that those those artists essentially become entrepreneurs. Mm -hmm. So several of the people I speak to in my book, they're like businessmen and businesswomen and learning how to how to sustain their careers on a smaller basis, but also how to keep the interest rolling. So one of the yeah. interviewees is Lloyd Cole. Yes. He writes out um, lyrics mm -hmm. and he will sell those handwritten lyrics. And, uh, and I thought, who buys them? I was a fan of Lloyd Cole, but I'm not going to buy them. But a neighbor of mine who didn't know I'd written the book uh, told me that a few weeks ago that he'd bought lyrics from Lloyd Cole. And I said, oh, wow, what will you do with them? He said, I'm going to frame them and put them up in my living room. The kids think I'm crazy, but I was a huge fan. So that's enough for him. It's yeah. certainly not enough to tempt a, um, a record Good label, point. at least not until they reach the age of 60 or 65, when maybe oh. there'll be this big renaissance a bit like happened with you know everybody from bob dylan to to leonard cohen to david bowie you know apparently a, the a theme that came back time and again in the book was that we don't like our pop stars to be middle-aged and i guess that's because we ourselves don't particularly like being middle-aged you know we no longer have the cheekbones we no longer look as good as we did in those skinny jeans as we did when we were 21 so when you see an act you know, trying to rock it the way they did in their early 20s. It just doesn't work. But if they live to old age, then suddenly we venerate them again and we we almost rediscover them. And, you know, Bowie famously had a very awkward 1990s. Nobody particularly um, loved Tim Machine. By the time he reached his 60s, he was a living God. And, you know, I think Bob Dylan, isn't it true that he had his first Billboard number one album at the age of 78? Mm -hmm. Leonard Cohen in his 70s could do no wrong. Yeah. You know, Dolly Parton is having a very good older right. age. Madonna, I imagine, is just going to be because she's had a tricky time recently, but she's just going to be fascinating because how Madonna interprets mortality on record is just going to be fascinating so we seem to like them at, in their 20s and in their mid to late 60s yeah. the bit in between is the awkward bit because life for all of us in the middle is the awkward bit yeah there are two things that you just said that i want to touch on first of all i thought regarding lloyd cole i think the single most insightful quote in your entire book came from him when he said i think i thought just being me was enough yeah and i thought <laughs> that says it all you know because all these bands just figure I'll, I'll go through life. I'll write some songs. I'll record, I'll put them yeah. out. I'll tour. I'll sell my lyrics. Just being me should be enough to pay <laughs> my bills forever, yeah. you know, because I have yeah. something. I thought that was so fascinating. And then regarding the show business part, I wanted to read a section from your chapter with CeeLo Green, which I thought was so fascinating that you got CeeLo. Yes, to talk he to was him. interesting, wasn't he? Yeah. Yes. And it says, I'm just going to read this paragraph. It says this, it, this, it might be argued, and I think this is you talking, is a particularly American reaction after having had success in one medium. You branch out and, in doing so, extend your shelf life because you remain in the public eye. Advertising long-life batteries may not ensure that you manage to write yourself another hit single, but it does increase the chances of being asked to advertise something else in turn, which maintains fame's buoyancy. Fame's buoyancy is that mm. I'll never forget that. That is the perfect way to say this mm. and it opens you up to more opportunities still for some, this is an appealing place to find an appealing place to find yourself in essentially show business. Yeah. And I think there's, there's two different camps, aren't there? So a lot of the people I spoke to and a lot of the pop stars out there are very precious about what they do. They really respect their art others. And I think it's changing now more to this 
part as well. Others are just happy to be in show business. So there are many acts today, really young acts, who are already judges on Saturday night TV shows. In the 80s and 90s, they wouldn't have dreamt of doing that because their art was too pure. But now, like CeeLo Green, they want to remain in show business. But not just that, they want to remain solvent. They've got mortgages. Maybe they've got you know, um, kids to provide for from previous marriages, or they like a lot of cars. So they want to do that. So there's nothing wrong with that. But there is the purist who will only be true to their art. And I suppose they both live quite happily alongside one another. But they are, there is a difference there. So in the book, there are lots of artists who are happy to just ply the nostalgia circuit, because they know that someone like me, will happily go along and only want to hear those songs that were big in 1983 because I was however old, 10, 13, and loved it then and don't want to hear the new stuff. Whereas an act like James, the Mancunian yeah. band, you know, fronted by Tim Booth, when they split up and got back together several years later, Tim Booth said, we're only doing this if we remain a new band. And somebody I don't interview in the book is Swade and Swade came before Britpop and and survived it, split up as all bands do. And as all bands do, they got back together again. And they have bucked that trend. But all of their new albums are great. I mean, they're really, really good. They may not be quite the proposition they were in the early 1990s, but they are adamant that they don't want to be seen as a nostalgia act. And so, yeah, so there's, there's two very different kinds of scores of thought really and is. both work for the respective artists concerned, I guess. And, and, and as to your point with Lloyd Cole, which I thought was fascinating, you know, we, we laugh at those kind of things that hubris, I think it's enough just to be mean, but in a way we can't really blame that. If we go back to what I was saying earlier about these are people whose dreams have come true. If my wildest dreams had come true when I was 19 or 21 years old, I would have gone crazy. It was, yeah. I had to work for absolutely everything for years before I got anywhere, before I made any money, certainly yeah. before anybody listened to me. And I still think even at the age of 53, no one's listening to me. Nobody needs to worry about me. But if that happens to you at the age of 21, of course, you're going to think, I am good. I am talent. Look at me. I'm great. So they get used to that. So when all of a sudden, they are no longer turning left in the aeroplane, but turning right, right in cattle class with everyone else. That's quite a shock. And it yes. takes a while to get used to that. And I think there is a fall from grace and they have to acclimatize to, to, to the air levels at our, at, at our position, not, not up there at the top anymore. Exactly. exactly. And that's what makes them so interesting to talk to because they are, they are the astronauts. They are the ones that have gone to moon and the moon and now they're coming back down to earth with a bump. That's so true. That capturing that moment, I, I've tried to do it on the on this podcast, and I don't think I've ever done it. I've I've gotten very few satisfying answers, but I am always curious what that first morning is when you, the day after you realize that you can't make it as a pop star anymore, and you yeah. wake up the next morning and you think, okay, now what? What do I do yes. today? You know, yeah. I uh, who do I know that will give me a job? The guy from yeah. what was it the uh, the Towers of London that goes and works on a building site and stuff like yeah. just fascinating. I want to read something else too. We can move off the idea of like legacy artists and stuff, but Alex from Franz Ferdinand, he, I thought made some very st- astute comparisons between musicians careers and writers careers. Yeah. Like mm, Charles Bukowski. Exactly. People who loves a writer like Charles Bukowski are paying attention to his entire career. They want yeah. to know his early stuff and what he was doing at the very end. And that's true yeah. for most writers. But I, again, going back to my confusion, I still feel that way for the artists that I love too. But apparently yeah, we do. don't, I don't know. The record label makes that difficult or people don't really care that deeply about someone's entire career. It's interesting, isn't it? Because that's when the accusation comes that music is is slightly fickle. It's a lesser art form. And I don't think it is at all, but the way that music is or traditionally has been presented to us, it's as much visual as it is oral. So in the 80s, MTV came to the fore and it revitalized music in a way that it hadn't, you know, even Dire Straits, who weren't as good looking as Madonna, used video medium really well. So Alex and several other people, I think in the book noted as well that we want our pop stars to look good. We do want to see those sharp cheekbones. We do want to see Beyonce strutting her stuff because she looks 
Fantastic. And, you know, when, when Franz Ferdinand were having their amazing moment in, I think, what, 2004, 2005? Like and that. the strokes as well. Look at the strokes. Yeah. You know, yeah. They looked as good as they sounded and it was very pleasing. And then when I was growing up, there were all the pop magazines that were full of posters. So you would take the posters out and put them up on the wall. Mm-hmm. So as great as they sounded, we wanted them to look good as well. And so that's really unfair. So no wonder pop stars have so many neuroses because they have to look good all the time. And all of us struggle with looking good all the time. Some of us, <laughs> you know, Most struggle <laughs> throughout our entire lives. Yes. But the pop star has to think, oh, shit, I'm really going to have to, yeah. you know, diet again or dye my hair again or or something. And that's quite an unfair burden on them. But yeah, as he said, you know, that we follow Charles Bukowski throughout his career. Look at Margaret Atwood, you know, look at Martin Scorsese. Um, You know, we don't care that he's in his 70s. We don't care. But the pop star has to be. And that's when they go back to saying, but somehow we forget all that with the older pop star and we just love him. There's a a folk artist in the book that I interview called Shirley Collins, who I'd never heard of. Mm -hmm. She was a famous folk singer in in the 1970s and in i think 77 78 she lost her voice rather dramatically after an acrimonious divorce she couldn't sing anymore so she had that vacuum that so many of these former pop stars had to fill thinking well what do i do now so she was a single mother so she simply focused on raising her two kids and she didn't return to singing and couldn't sing you know physically with her voice gone until her mid to late 70s now she's 85 and over here she is just treated like a god so she's not really selling very many records but she puts out an album the guardian will give it five out of five and it's almost like treating her as folks answer to david attenborough oh my god she's still alive and she's wonderful and she's lived this life and it was tough but she saw her way through it so we doff our cap and suddenly then it doesn't matter what she looks like we because there's a bigger story and that story is survival and we've always lived vicariously through pop stars haven't we even from when we were kids we look up at them and worship them so someone who has lived through what she has lived through or even you know some what somebody else i interviewed in the book don mclean has lived through they get to a ripe old age and you kind of admire them no matter what and you it's it happens then but yeah those middle years for them when they still have to suck in their their stomachs while they're doing up those leather trousers is difficult for them. And I think that makes a fan like you and me admire them all the more because it just shows that they really are made of true grit, aren't they? They're they're not going to give up without a fight. And that's what, as I said, I think I came away from every interview reeling in admiration for Mm -hmm. this strange life that they've chosen, but also what they have to do and what they have to sacrifice to stay there in some form or other. That's very true. Um, okay, let's talk about some of the neuroses. I've had Don McLean on here too, and he was nice enough with me. We kept it short. He's a cranky kind of complicated person, especially in his later years. We he's I don't, angry, isn't he? Yes, he is. And he's got his little 20 year old girlfriend now and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Domestic violence. And anyway, I, uh, yeah. but we should, I do want to talk about Terrence Trent Darby. Sananda. What a story. Yeah. My goodness. Talk about neuroses. I I, I gotta be honest, I talked to him a couple of years ago and it exhausted me. I was <laughs> physically wasted afterwards because it was so just so many loops in thought and and I and logic. And I was trying to yeah. keep up and it was so hard. And uh I I think you may have had sort of and I'm not trash talking him because I'm a big admirer of his and I like even his Sananda music. But it's just difficult. And I wonder what your experience was like, because he's in your book, too. Well, that's that for me proves that. And I'm generalizing here, but the pop star is cut from a different cloth. You know, I I could not imagine standing out on stage in front of people and, and expecting them to scream at me. You know, I couldn't write a song any more than I can walk on water. So I always thought there was something above and beyond with the pop stars and, and Sananda Maitreya, as he's called now, a little bit like CeeLo Green. He just talks in ribbons, you know, like they've, they've flung to the corner of the room and you're trying to catch up with them and <laughs> roll, reel them back in. And you think, I beg your pardon. And But if, if their minds didn't work in that way, they wouldn't be able to write the songs they write and they wouldn't be able to perform them in the way they do. So 
his was such an incredible story. You know, I still remember the first time I heard him in about 1987, I think. He, oh, my um, God. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and he just exploded out of nowhere. You know, he looked to make, again, he was one of those who looked as good as he sounded. Mm-hmm. It seemed to be, what, the biggest pop star in the Western world overnight mm-hmm. was threatening Prince, was threatening, you know, uh, Michael Jackson for their pop crown. Mm-hmm. And again, he was one of those examples that, look what I've done all on my own steam. I'm a genius, clearly, because the world is telling me I'm a genius. If I sell 3 million records in, 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 in a day, I'm a genius. End of. There's no discussion there. So then he thought, I'm going to indulge myself. It's worked for Prince. It's going to work for me. Mm-hmm. And that's where he and the record company had differing ideas. They wanted, perfectly understandably, more of the same. Those early pop songs of Terence Trent Darby, as he was called then, were perfect as far as i'm concerned they were just perfect and they still sound as good today as 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 they did back then but he now wanted to express himself in 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 more interesting ways as he would put it and that that meant you know kind of rococo operettas that went on for eight or nine minutes it just didn't float for the record company i thought this is going to cost us a fortune but more importantly lose us a fortune so i think eventually they parted ways with you know having differences artistic differences and if I read between the lines of his his chapter correctly, he kind of went into a kind of depression, suffered from post-traumatic stress because he was very, very famous and then very, very not famous. Mm-hmm. The way he tells it, he was promptly replaced by another emergent black superstar, and that was Lenny Kravitz, That's who would toe the party line a little bit more. And so, yeah, he kind of disappeared to some mansion off Sunset Boulevard which is very cinematic. So I don't know how true that is, but it's a good story to tell. Mm-hmm. And he re-emerged 10 years later, now living in Milan, married to an Italian architect with two young children. The name Sananda Maitreya had, has Buddhist extraction, I think, and had come to him in a dream. I think lots of his things had come to him in a dream. And now he was making music his way. And that meant writing umpteen songs for every album. When I'd interviewed him, he'd recently released a 53-track album. Mm-hmm. So, of course, Sony was never going to release a 53-track album. And one of those songs was about his impotency, which is, you know, fair fair dues to him for, for admitting mm-hmm. that it was called Limp Dick Blues. So it wasn't even covered, coloured or, or disguised in, in you know, right. in artistic lyrics. He just right. said it as it was. Uh-huh. But his argument was, look, I can do what I want now. I've played that pop game. I didn't like it. And I think the truth was he didn't really work in there because he didn't toe the party right. line. But now, in order to maintain his own sanity, he was writing and recording and playing his own songs and instruments and releasing on his own label. And if he had a tiny fraction of the audience he once had, he had come to some peace with it. The, the, the point that he made to me, which I thought really stuck out, stood out, was that in the interim, Prince had died, George Michael had died, Michael Jackson had died. He was still alive. True. So yeah, he was nowhere near successful and he never would be again but he had his life mm-hmm. Good point. and that's the you know sometimes this you know it's it's only music but sometimes for some people it really is a matter of life and death isn't it it really is um let's talk about bob geldoff too i was he was so forth he's a great interview anyway <laughs> anytime i ever hear him or see him he's just so forthcoming one thing that really yeah. struck me with bob geldoff first of all is you write in there about him not knowing what to do after with the after the demise of the Boomtown Rats. What do I do hmm. from here? Now, when I because of because of where my mind is with my own podcast and stuff, my mind goes to what am I going to do to make a living? How yeah. am I going to pay my bills? But you hmm. say in that chapter that he's got a couple of different houses, <laughs> and and so maybe paying the bills. Maybe he made enough money. The Boomtown Rats, unfortunately, don't mean anything over here other than yeah. Mondays. Mondays. So, so they're not a thing. But they um, they were a big enough thing over there, I guess, for him to be financially solvent enough yeah. to flutter between his two houses and decide, what should I do next artistically? Yeah. That was really interesting yeah. to me. And I realized from your book that if he had if he had adjusted to just being a father and a husband and live a normal domestic life, he wouldn't have been, uh, uncomfortable or, you know, itchy enough to do something that sparked Libaid because that yeah. seemed to me like that I'm so bored mm. with domestic life 
I'm not fit to be here sitting here every day, yeah. driving kids to school. I need a new project. This looks like my new project. That's what I found with a lot of the people that I interviewed, that they're not really domesticated creatures. Yeah. They they need true. to live on a tour bus on stage. They need to be getting wasted somewhere. They don't function with a kettle. You know, I've, I lost count of the amount of bands I've interviewed over the years who tell me that when they go home, they, they are off tour. So they've been on tour for 18 months. They're always confused that they run out of clothes because they think, well, where are my clothes? And of course, it's their spouse that has to sell them. They're on the floor. You just dropped them there when they were dirty and you expect me to clean them. I'm not cleaning them because they've never used a washing machine. Right. <laughs> so Geldof, the Boomtown Rats were, you know, before my time a little bit, but they were successful for a good 10 years over here. And they were going to become U2 before U2 became U2. And he, as you said, he articulates himself so so very well. So when they came about, they were all about kicking out the deadwood from the mid 1970s because they thought British music was rubbish and they were rock and roll, not punk, rock and roll. And they were going to stamp their footprint on. And they did that and they got rid of those, um, you know, the, the, the dull bands as they saw it from the 70s. So by the mid 80s, when the 80s bands were doing the same to them, he was horrified because he was 20 in the mid 70s. Now he was 30. And yes, he's made his money. But I've interviewed lots of people with money and they said, well, when you've, get, you've got it, it, it doesn't matter. Well, yes, you can pay the electricity bill, but I'm still getting up every morning and thinking, well, what on earth am I going to do with not just my day, but the rest of my life? So, yeah, he was completely unemployed and he had a wife and he had a young child. And he said, you know, I'm 30. Is, is that it? Is it over already? I've got so much more to say. These idiots aren't buying enough of my records to give me another hit single. That's all I want is another hit single. And he did something that is highly unusual. He found something else to plug that gap. Not every former pop star goes on to feed the world and become a living saint. Right. He did. But what I found so interesting about his story was that many of the artists that I interviewed found that they couldn't find anything that was as fulfilling to them as music had been, which is why they go back to music. And you've kind of got to figure that Geldof did find something Mm -hmm. more fulfilling because he helped alert the world to the plight in, in Ethiopia. Um, he helped to feed the world. He went on to become a wildly successful businessman, entre entrepreneur. He invested in all sorts of tech companies. He is so very wealthy. Yes. And that was not enough music wealth. It's not all music wealth. It's investment. No, it's, wealth. it's almost not music wealth. It's tech. He, yeah. he, he, he said that he would invest in things, if he liked the name of it. So obviously I'm uh, sure that there were lots of deals that didn't work, but uh -huh. the deals that worked worked very well indeed. That and that wasn't enough. Yeah. All he had ever wanted to do was be a rock star. Uh -huh. So he continued playing live as a solo artist. And they would say, oh, Bob Geldof, the fellow who fed the world. Do you remember him? And he didn't <laughs> like that. He just wanted to be. So there's this great you know, thing in the book where he's wandering down the street and and people come up to him with tears in their eyes and they're pressing money on him. And he just says, oh, fuck off, leave me alone. I'm a rock star. I'm back to being a rock star now. Yeah. I'm not that guy anymore. I'm not St. Bob because he didn't want to be seen as that. So that was this poisoned chalice. This was this weight around his neck. He was much happier playing in a small venue in Italy where apparently he was quite popular throughout his solo years. Mm. And then when the band got together when he was in his 60s, he said he, he was never happier than then, jumping up and down on stage as he'd done when he was 27, and now he was 67. Mm -hmm. He said that was more fulfilling to him than anything else. And he said that in my passport, it doesn't say saint, it says rock star. Mm -hmm. And that's all he ever wanted to be. So, yeah, people find that music must be such a fulfilling way to live your life, or pop star must be such a fulfilling way, that whatever you do afterwards doesn't come close so they try to recapture it in whichever way and i found that really fascinating because it's almost like they're stuck in their youth we're stuck a little bit in our youth as fans and we want them to go back there but they want to go back there every bit as much as we do wow wow and to think feeding the world and becoming a saint is still not good <laughs> enough compared it's to Rockstar. Oh have a hit gosh. single that's enough now i see boomtown rats sometimes on like 80s nostalgia package shows over there and i've always wondered is that bob doing that because that seems like a really un bob thing to do it does and i wasn't aware of that until he just told me that because i know that that's not their thing it doesn't seem to be his thing but maybe 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 it's I've a way of reminding people yeah. yeah maybe it's a way of reminding people who are out there then they can go and play their own headline yeah. tours because 
I don't know what it's like over in, well, actually, 20 odd years ago, I went I for Q magazine. I had to go around the American Midwest with Culture Club. Mm. They had just reformed for the first time since the 1980s. And back then, they still hated each other. Mm. And I was on tour buses with them. It was quite Ooh. fascinating. Ooh. And it was them, the Human League and Howard Jones. And I always remember because that was the time when the Verve were really big in America with Bittersweet Symphony. And they were playing the same venue, the same cities at the same time. So while the Verve, who were right huge and, you know, yeah, on the, you know, on the tip of the zeitgeist, yeah. they were playing to 4,000 people a night. The Culture Club, Human League and Howard Jones were playing to 20,000 people a night. Yeah. So ever since then, those nostalgia tours, both, I, I guess, in yeah. America, but it's a, a lot over here, are huge business. So yeah. lots of pop stars will turn their nose up at it, but they know that instead of playing to those 150 people we mentioned earlier, they're playing to a crowd of 15,000 people who are in love with them and only want to hear those three songs that they loved when they were 15. And they will worship them because of it. And I suppose if you've been worshipped once and you have the opportunity to be worshipped again, why would you say no? Why? <laughs> Even if you're Bob Geldof and, you know, if, if, if the Boomtown Rats do go back and do them, who can blame them? What a yeah. way to spend an evening. It's better That's than true. staying home watching TV. It's so true. Oh my gosh. You're so brilliant, Nick. I love the way you say things. Um, I've seen all three of those bands on 80s nostalgia tours. It's so yeah. interesting. In fact, I just interviewed Howard Jones last week and oh, wow. he's coming. He's going to be here in a couple of weeks with Midjur. And um, okay. I just love them. Anyway. Um, okay. One thing, <laughs> speaking of things that you say that make me laugh, um, the single greatest sentence I think I've ever read in any book ever is in your charlatans chapter where you say they'd seen each other's bum holes for goodness sake <laughs> yes yes that's the there, greatest, context there. That is the greatest sentence ever written they'd seen you each have, other's you bum holes the you say you explain it i love it well the, they they were they, there's a, there's a section i think the first section in the book is all about the part drugs can play because as surprising as it may sound drugs does play a big part in pop music and so yeah i talked to some bands yeah who knew um so some bands for whom drugs just ruined everything <sighs> then there were other bands that wouldn't be the, the bands they are today without drugs so they're using creatively in a timothy lyrics you know mm -hmm. to a, a way to expand their mind and tim burgess who is just the sweetest guy you you know expect a rock star of his vintage to be a little bit gnarly and a little bit difficult. Just he's it's like talking to a Labrador puppy. He's just, mm. you know, a lovely bloke. Mm. And he was explaining that while the, the charlatans were touring America, they didn't have quite a, a grasp on just how big America is, especially if you're in a tour bus going a steady 55 miles an hour. <laughs> so they were bored out of their of their brains. Mm -hmm. So they were finding things to do. So they were doing lots of drugs. On, 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 the, on the bus and then after a while they were getting bored or they were getting used to it so they'd read somewhere and I can't remember where that you'll get a faster high if you blow coke up 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 your ass and of course you can't unless you're very very bendy you can't really do it to your own so they would do it to one another's so I guess what they're trying to suggest there is that when you are a band on tour <laughs> You do become quite intimate because you share living space. And in the Charlatans case, they became very intimate indeed. And apparently the nerve endings there are, are more receptive. So they did have quite good highs. <laughs> not something I've ever done. I've got to confess. <laughs> not, not yet. <laughs> Me neither. Oh, just listening yeah. to your proper English accent tell this story <laughs> is the best. It is the best. Yeah. I want to make a, I want to get that uh, like a plaque. <laughs> with they'd seen each other's bum holes for goodness sake written on it. But, you I know, love 30 it. years later, they're still together and they're still, they, yeah. they are, I suppose, in every sense, a band of brothers, you know. Mm -hmm. I saw them, yeah. uh, I've seen them a couple of times, but I saw them a couple of years ago before lockdown. It was so great. Um, he's a really interesting case as well in that he's one of the few, you know, he has gone back to music as well himself, obviously, and the Charlatans mm -hmm. are still a going concern, but he has found this other role that I think he finds incredibly fulfilling. The listening he seems parties. to be. Yeah, those listening parties. He yeah. seems to become this music ambassador. Um, so 
in in lockdown there there already had been charlatans listening parties that i I'd, i'd not heard of mm. but yeah he just gets every he used to get charlatans fans together on twitter and they used to listen to old charlatans albums at the same time and just share memories of via social media when lockdown happened he opened that up to any album and then the artists joined so whether it was new order or echo and the bunnyman or bonnie tyler or uh, Duran paul Duran. mccartney did his well, paul McCartney last album on there yeah so then suddenly he he became this vessel, if you like, just to in, at a time when we were all locked at home and unable to enjoy live music. And he allowed us to all enjoy music socially, mm-hmm. but, you know, socially distanced. Separate. And I think he's kind of become, yeah, this, he, he he's a DJ and he he's still released. I think he's got this huge solo album coming out soon that's mm-hmm. got many tracks, almost as many as Sananda Maitreya. So, you know, he's still very creative, but he has found this niche. Mm-hmm. where he writes the occasional book he dj's a lot the band will get back together i don't think they blow anything up asses anymore because <laughs> they're of a particular age but then solo albums so he has found a way to make music his lifelong career and i think for many of the artists i spoke to and i guess many pop stars in general mm-hmm. they do want to make this a lifelong concern because if they can why not it, yeah. it you know as many of them said to me it beats working for a living it's true it really does um, one of the things that I thought was really telling also in the book was the chapter on hothouse flowers because, mm. um, and I can't even begin to pronounce all their names or anything. Like no, that. I can't pronounce his surname at all, even though I've heard it several times. Yeah. yeah. So, but I thought it was, in, is his first name Liam? Is he a Liam? Liam. So Liam's yeah. easy. I can pronounce That's Liam. Right. Yeah. Yep. So in the, uh, one thing that I thought was so telling about that part was that there became a, there came a point, even though the band was pretty much over or hadn't been, you know, a concern yeah. for a long time, where him or certain members just need to pay the rent, and so they yeah. said, "Well, let's schedule some gigs. People will come out. We'll make enough money. We'll pay our rent, and we'll be good." And I just thought, what a powerful position, like an omnipotent position to be in, where I can just say, "I need money. I'm going to play half a dozen shows. I'll have money, and things will be fine after that." And not, I, I mean, yeah. Yeah. Yes, you know, and bless their hearts that they're in a position where they can do that. Not everybody could, yeah. but I thought that was really telling too that he was upfront about that. You know, completely, yeah, yeah, because he that was that was one of the most interesting things for me is that, and I don't think this is replicated in any other art form, is it? Where you can, you know, Martin Amis can't say, "Look at that book I wrote in 1981; wasn't that great?" Mm-hmm. And and you know, you know, Martin Scorsese similarly, you know, Taxi Driver's there, and we love it, but we'd like to see a new film pop stars if they are lucky enough to have written one great song five great songs however many they can that can be a cash machine forever and so you can have one hit and it can sustain you it can pay the mortgage or it can keep you in private jets if it's particularly big and that's that's an amazing thing so we were talking earlier about CeeLo Green mm-hmm. being in show business nothing wrong with that at all Liam from Hot House Flowers occupies the other uh, end of the spectrum a bit like i suppose damien rice another irish singer songwriter and and you know ray lamontaine as well an artist i love and admire and i've interviewed him a couple of times and he's incredibly he's a purist he's there for the music he hated being famous i saw i once saw ray lamontaine play at the albert hall you know one of the most beautiful music venues i've ever been anywhere in the world is right here in london it's a stunning place and he essentially played with his back to the audience with his head, you know, he had a very long fringe. So he couldn't see out. We couldn't see his face. And everyone was saying, turn around. And he didn't want to because that wasn't his thing. He he managed to play the songs, but he just yeah. didn't like being in that position. And Liam was one of those acts who they exploded. I remember seeing them in America in 1988. I was, I was, a, I was a counselor at a summer camp there. And when we left, we heard that hothouse flowers were playing an hmv somewhere and i remember taking two or three buses to go an hour and a half to go and see them because they were the rolling stone magazine had just proclaimed them the hottest band in the world and so they loved it for a time they were the new u2 you know in as we said earlier the music industry always has to have a new something and a novelty somewhere they for a while with that single don't go were the new u2 and so he said it was amazing but then after a while they quickly realized that for the record company they were just a product. They were a marketing tool and they were not allowed to go home. They had to keep on touring, keep on releasing new albums, keep them uh, commercial so we can keep them on the radio. And then you'll be a rock star. Okay. If you don't want to wear shoes, fine, but you know, just do play the part of rock stars best you can. 
And so he did it for a while and then he got burned out and, you know, um, his father died and he used that as a fitting excuse to say, look, I'm now finally going to take some time for myself. And when he went home, he realized that he didn't want to get back on that treadmill. And there are many people in the book, you know, Natalie Merchant is another one in the book who yeah. thought, I didn't want to be famous. I love playing music. I love having an audience and I'm grateful for them, but I don't want to be famous. And so with the Hothouse Flowers, whenever they've had people say, um, you know, either films or advertising companies saying, look, can we use one of your songs to sell, whether it's cars or tampons or washing up liquid? They say, no, you're not doing that. It's my art. I don't care how much money you're going to offer me. When they do need money, and Liam was very upfront, you know, he's in his late 50s now and he's still renting. He never got it together to buy a house. So he says every now and then I need to pay the rent and I'm back. I've fallen back on the rent. I just get the band together. We play two sold out nights in Dublin. I've paid the rent for the next six months. So he is that almost that old fashioned minstrel who just plays music yeah. wherever. And, you know, he yeah. taps into that folk tradition of just turning up somewhere with a guitar and he can impress anyone anywhere. But he doesn't want to do it at the beck and call of a record label. But he is someone else who has found a way to make music his lifelong concern his way. And that's what I go back to what I said to earlier that it's difficult not to really admire these people because they are unusually tenacious and driven. And I guess they're particularly talented as well. And it's, it's difficult not to admire that kind of level of belief and talent. It is. Um, speaking of Natalie, I was shocked that she agreed to be in your book, nothing against oh, really? you, but because she doesn't do hardly any interviews, you know, yeah, I was and I was surprised that she even would talk about this topic. There were some other people in the book and I could tell just from how much they were quoted, whether you got a lot of their time or a little, there yes. was Roland Orzabal, there's Joe Jackson, there's Adam Ant, and yeah. um, several of these are all people that I've tried to get on here many times and, you know, they won't talk to me and stuff. Well, in a couple um, of those instances, sorry to interrupt, but in a couple of those instances, I had interviewed them, but not for the book. So Adam Ant and Roland Orzabal, I, I'd interviewed them for magazine pieces. But but yeah, there were some. So Joe Jackson was lovely. He doesn't give many yeah. interviews no. and he was lovely, but I just didn't get much from him. And Joan Armour Trading is someone I grew up mm. admiring wildly. And she doesn't give she's as you know, she's so enigmatic. She makes Kate Bush almost look like Lady Gaga. You know, she doesn't <laughs> like the, the she doesn't like the fan face, she doesn't like anything. But right. she very kindly granted me a telephone interview. I just didn't say very much, but that I felt was fascinating in itself because she showed me how at the age of 70 something, mm -hmm. she has survived all of this time by answering as few questions as possible, by giving away as little as possible, and by simply just putting music out there. If you want to buy it, great. If you don't, it doesn't bother me at all. Yeah. And I thought that was really interesting. That is so fascinating. Well, I um, I mean, I think I've exhausted, I, I've exhausted most of my questions, but I just think the the value and the pricelessness of this book cannot be overstated. It is for people like me and who have been obsessed with this topic for so long, it is gold every chapter. And I'm, I'm, you know, I was kind of proud of myself that I've talked to, you know, half the people you had in your book too. And I, the yeah, other half so I've been I've dying been to talk to and I'm glad <laughs> somebody did. So yeah. one last thing, uh, I'll close it out. I, I shouldn't close it out on kind of a sadder note, but I will anyway. I assume this one's okay to tell the the very first chapter about Peter Parrott and from the other ones is just tremendously heartbreaking. And you realize how talk, I mean, we've, so in my experiences on these interviews, people's careers go down either because bands can't keep it together. There's yeah. label indifference, the lab, the head honcho that signed them is gone. Yeah. And some new band becomes a higher priority and they don't care or it's drugs. Those are the three yeah. biggest things that I've found that bring down artists and drugs yeah. in this case was a big one. And you tell that story in there about how he got, mm. he was getting his life back in order and he got a big chunk of money, 500,000 pounds that is going to sustain him for years. And he blows it all on drugs. Yeah. That broke my yeah. heart. That story was interesting. I mean, again, you know, he, he, he opens the book, I think for a good reason. For a start, yes. I couldn't believe how candid he was being just my jaw dropped yeah. to the floor i thought wow this is gold dust but, but it's such a resonant story because it's happened it's such a common one for so many pop stars that you know this if, if you don't come into this already dabbling in drugs it makes you because it's a difficult industry to live in to exist in mm -hmm. and you need 
to fortify yourself for what so that you know the only ones were almost a big band in the in the in the late 1970s as a punk act and they had one almost hit single another girl another planet didn't quite make it into the charts but people the right people knew it and it got played over the years and the band yeah the band broke up because of drugs and he became heavily dependent on them for the next three decades um but what was so interesting about that story for me was that it was going back to something we'd mentioned earlier that one song can sustain you but in this case also rescue you so the, that band were lost and forgotten about but over the years billy bragg blink 182 the cure rem all covered that song at some point and he found out at some point you know his sons showed him how to use youtube um they they, they queued it up and he thought oh my god that's my song oh my this is this is a big band playing my song and of course that resurrected interest in the band so he was still an addict still struggling with his addictions so every now and then he would get some money, which if nothing else kept the wolf from the door, but also, as you pointed out, you know, kept him in drugs. But it, it revived interest. So at one point, Warren Ellis from the from the Bad Seeds was was curating a, a festival here in the UK and said, look, I grew up listening to you. I'm a huge fan. Do you think you can perform? So, of course, the band members were over the moon and they said, look, we need to get our singer. We need to keep him clean and get him on stage. So he tells that story so beautifully about being basically off his tits and the band managing and his sons managing to get him on stage. And, and he, he sung there on stage and he just looked at the people in the audience and they had tears in their eyes because they were immediately being plugged into their youth. And he, he essentially said, it gave me a reason to live again and to want to be sober again. And he said that he'd had loads of ideas for songs while he was high and he didn't write them down because he knew that the big and the good ideas would, would stay but they didn't. He'd forgotten all of them. And he said, I'd done the worst thing. I took my art for granted. But eventually, when the band got back together and they did a tour, he became clean. He was clean and sober. The band ended for all the usual reasons that bands always end. But then he he was adamant that he'd been given a second, if not third, fourth, fifth, 16th shot mm-hmm. at, a, at another star. And so, yeah, in his late 50s, early 60s, as a clean and sober artist, he became a solo act and he was on reputable late night news programs over here. And going back to what I said earlier about Shirley Collins, when he had new albums out, they were reviewed incredibly generously. And everyone said, you know, he's a survivor. Isn't it great that he's still here? And so music in a way or the attention that music brought him destroyed him. And then at the end of his life or towards the end of his life, because he's still healthy and alive and kicking music saved him and was his salvation and gave him a reason to stay clean and to keep going on and i thought that was such a powerful story of what music can do for you that it can plunge you all the way down but it can grab you back up uh, into the land of the living again and i thought he told his story with such humility and such pathos yeah Mm. he really did it's a beautiful book and um i'm so grateful that you wrote it nick um it was, it's a topic that, uh, that I've been obsessed with and you're, you're a beautiful writer. And it was, it was just like reading my inner dialogue, you know, all the things I've wanted to know, you included it all, uh, them all in there. And I hope people find this book because it's fantastic. fantastic. Well, thank you so much for saying that. And I do have to say at the risk of just paying a compliment back, you know, your, your podcasts mine exactly the same thing and you bring out terrific interviews in, in your interviewees and it just shows again just how much they they hustle and how that that passion never goes out and it's so yeah so i i love listening to your podcast and so Thank thanks you. so much for for having me i really appreciate it thank you so much all right there you have it nick durden i love that conversation and more importantly i love this book and i am so happy to tell you we have a couple of copies to give away to patreon supporters so as everyone knows hopefully by now there's two tiers but the first tier of the Patreon support is just $2 a month. And that puts you in the running of winning any and all swag like this book that we have to give away. So hurry and sign up for for, uh, Patreon and donate a couple of bucks a month. You can just set it and forget it. Next Sunday, I will randomly select a winner and I will let that person know uh, who they are. But again, or people I should say, because as I said, I have two books. So this week, look into signing up for our patreon so you can get a copy of this book possibly okay the second tier obviously is the bigger one it's five dollars a month 
you get the first tier stuff and you get, um, I will tell you who I'm interviewing and you can submit questions if you want and I will try and work them into the conversation. Anyway, huge thank you to Nick. I love this book and I know you will too. Thanks everybody.